This is Tending Seeds, and I'm your host, Sarah, talking to you about homesteading, gardening, and herbalism. Hi, friends. Happy New Year. This is our first episode of 2023. I am so happy to be back in the swing of things here with the podcast. I hope your year has been off to a great start so far. We have a lot going on and big plans this year. I told you last episode a little bit about our journey to Colorado and getting started living off grid out here on our new land. We have some other exciting things in the works as well. One big project right now for us is that my partner Mike and I are working to open a tattoo and piercing studio next month in Hotchkiss, Colorado, which is a super cute town about 35 minutes from our property. There's a lot of hard work going into that right now, and I absolutely cannot wait for us to actually get to open hopefully in early February. So another kind of great aspect of having that commercial space means that we have dedicated room for Fox and Elder again. We're currently living in a small camper on our land until our shop building is finished, and that just does not leave enough room for blending up herbal teas and other goodies. Now we have plenty of room to get everything unpacked and going again. So last week, we actually reopened the Fox and Elder online farm shop, and we're restocked with teas, tinctures, and elderberry syrup kits again. I'll be continuing to add more new products as I keep processing the dried herbs from our last growing season in Tennessee, and I'm already planning big things for our first growing season here in Colorado. So hop on over to the shop at foxandelder.com and check out what we have in store for you. Thanks so much. For today's episode, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation with Tasha Greer about her wonderful book, Grow Your Own Spices. Tasha lives in homesteads in North Carolina and has so much wonderful experience to share with us. We recorded this conversation this past summer before I left Tennessee, and I really hope you'll get a lot from this episode. More than anything, I hope you'll be inspired to work a few new spices into your garden plans for this coming spring. Enjoy. Hi, Tasha. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I always like to ask folks to introduce themselves rather than me reading off a laundry list of facts and credentials about them, which feels pretty impersonal. So I was wondering to get us started, if in your own words, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. Hey, Sarah, it's really good to be here. And um, I just have to say, I think that you and I probably have a lot in common. I feel like we're, uh, we're both people who accept that we're on a journey and we're not trying to be sort of perfect at the beginning. (laughs) We're just kind of, uh, we learn as we go and we have some good fun. And so that's always been sort of my philosophy in life and in homesteading as well. Um, I just really kind of try to do the things that I love and enjoy and, you know, sort of um, feed good with good, you know, so it's like when I start to have a success at something, then I'll do a little bit more in that direction. If that starts to be a little bit dull, then I go someplace else. So I'm just always kind of following different exciting pathways around the homestead. So I started out mainly like the some herbs that was kind of really my that was almost 20, 24 years ago. So it's been a while, but I started with herbs and kind of moved on to a few flowers and then some strawberries and lettuce. And then about, I guess, 12 years ago, um, it was like the full scale vegetable garden and throwing in some like dwarf fruit trees. And then I guess eight years ago, it was a a 10 acre homestead with two acres cleared and doing massive, you know, permaculture um, scale project to regenerate the land and big gardens. And now I'm really getting into like natives and flowers. So it's just all over the place. (laughs) I'm an adventurer and a seeker. Those are maybe the best words I can come up with. 
I love that. That's amazing. And I think that's true for so many homesteaders is there's always, we all may maybe have a different in way or path into this journey, but then we kind of just start, you know, with one thing and then the next, and then the years just somehow magically pass by. Right. And then you look around and go, how did I get here? Like I'm in the middle of, I'm living in the middle of nowhere on, you know, 10 acres and growing everything I eat. And it's awesome. So I love that. Very cool. And uh, also just to maybe kind of anchor ourselves a little bit in place in the seasons. Can you just tell us where are you speaking to us from today and what are some things happening right now in your gardens? Yes. So I am in Northwestern North Carolina at Surrey County, Low Gap. It's, it's a very small place that almost nobody knows, but um, we're called Low Gap for a reason. We're kind of a low gap in the, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so my property elevation runs between about 1,700 feet and 1,300 feet. So, and I have about a 200 foot elevation change from my upper greenhouse to my um, lower pond. So it's very heavily sloped, lots of terraced gardens, um, you know, things like a vineyard. All I have, wherever I have level places, I kind of fit in these garden rooms and that's where I do my sort of primary cultivated gardens and everywhere else I'm growing like food forest kind of, you know, things with swales and hugel cultures and everything I can do to slow down water and capture it and hold it on the landscape. So we're, June is like the busiest month for us because everything is in full bloom. You know, we've already kind of gone through our cold season crops and are into transitioning everything to the warm season and thinking ahead to, you know, changing everything out already in August. So this is like, uh, I would never say it's hectic because I try to, I'm just sort of like plant by plant, you know, one thing at a time, but this is maybe the most exciting time for us. There's definitely a lot happening. And like you said, it's not hectic, but it also doesn't slow down and there's no shortage of things to do. And living in an area, similar climate to where I am in Tennessee, where you get those three seasons of growing time. And so, right, you just finished up putting all the spring stuff away, getting summer stuff out, but you already kind of have to be thinking ahead to, you know, what you're going to grow for fall as well. So always, always things to do for sure. (laughs) And it sounds like you have a lot going on there that you're really trying to work with the land, with the swales and the elevation changes and terracing and just fitting as much into your food forest as possible. So I love hearing that. I totally want to come visit you now. Um, (laughs) Come on over. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been doing this for quite a while, but I I like to ask people also like what first drew you to homesteading and and wanting to grow your own food in the first place? Yeah, I'm, um, grew up in Southern California and I, you know, was very concerned about the environment because we were living in droughts and I was just seeing a lot of changes that I didn't really um, feel comfortable with. And so I started out as an environmentalist in my early twenties, but then I moved to DC and there it was still lush and green and covered with trees. And even in the middle of the city, you had peach blossoms and it just didn't feel like the world was that bad. (laughs) But okay, it's all good. It was just California that had a problem, but kind of the years wore on and it just started to appear there as well. We got more floods from the hurricanes and, you know, we had a lot of power outages, brownouts from heats. And, you know, I just, I like was reminded that, okay, yeah, that's right. I'm an environmentalist. And so I, I kind of just really started to get back into that maybe about 12 years ago. And so slowly I realized that I was going to have to really get into the food chain to 
you know, really start to cut out the food miles and find things to amuse myself with that didn't require me flying to France or other exotic places because I used to travel a lot. Um, so I really just sort of wanted to bring all the things that I'd loved and the places I'd visited and traveled into my backyard so that I felt like staying home instead of rushing out to go places. And so I just kept getting deeper and deeper into food. And then I met a man who is wonderful and had similar goals and interests. And so when you got two people working together, things just kind of go quickly and <laughs> suddenly you're on this track that you didn't expect but it's wonderful because <laughs> you're not alone you know you're doing it together <laughs> yeah I've been on a similar journey in the past year and it's, <laughs> it's pretty great to suddenly have someone walking side by side or in many cases running because we both have way too many ideas of things we want to get done <laughs> So I'm really excited to talk to you about your book today, Grow Your Own Spices. It's been kind of my my quest with this season of the podcast to really dig deeper to more kind of like 201 level homesteading things and bringing on people to talk about topics we haven't really covered before. And so this is definitely one um, that when I came across your book, I was like, yes, this this we need to talk about here. And so in your book, you talk about, you refer to spices as being sort of the final frontier for at-home food production. Why why is that and, and what got you into it? Yeah, so the funny thing is, like I when I really started getting serious about homesteading, I was going to the farmers markets and realizing, okay, everybody's got leafy herbs, everybody's got, you know, plenty of great vegetables, and there were even people doing some sustainable meats and things like that, but nobody was doing finished spices. So there was, you know, nobody had like smoked paprika or, you know, anything uh, uh, sort of of the more mature plant nature that, you know, required some additional processing. So I thought, you know, that's going to be my my contribution to the local farmer's market. But when I started looking into it and started growing these things, I realized how much labor was involved <laughs> um, and how really... Um, that that processing component and getting the labeling right because spices are actually a lot more complicated than just selling anything fresh i just i realized that wasn't the way i wanted to go and instead i wanted to kind of share knowledge with people about how to grow their own um, because this is something that you can do yourself and it's a lot more affordable because there isn't you know all that expensive processing and all the labeling and everything that goes into to the product making if you're doing it by yourself and a lot of spices they take longer to grow but they're not as difficult as you would think i mean they're if you can have a relationship with an orchid in your office you can grow vanilla too you just need to have more space for it um, and, a, and a longer term you know outlook so it's like it's really just a it's a, a lengthening of your relationship with plants rather than a complication mm -hmm. I think yeah that's really beautiful and, and that's something I've discovered as well just through being a medicinal herb grower is that most gardeners were very used to our annual vegetables, you know, every spring we start our tomato plants, we put them out after last frost and then cold weather comes and we're done for the season. And so instead getting into, especially like woodland medicinal herbs, things like golden seal, OSHA, things like that, where you're looking at six, seven or more years before you even think about harvesting from a plant. So that, like you said, that more long range relationship that you really have to build with those plants. So it sounds like spices might be sort of somewhere in between that, in between like an annual, but maybe not seven years to harvest, hopefully. <laughs> it <laughs> so. depends on the spice. I mean, certainly like, so um, one of the things, 
things I always try to tell people is like the, the way I distinguish a spice is really like how it grows in the garden. I mean, it's something for culinary use. A lot of them also have medicinal purposes, but an annual is something that you're going to um, harvest or an herb is something you're going to harvest at sort of the leafy green state. And the, the spice is where you're going to be harvesting either like the flower buds at exactly the perfect state, um, or you're going to be harvesting the, the corms or the bulbs or the, not the corms, the bulbs or the rhizomes underground, you know, after they've senesced, which is basically the, you know, they've retracted all of the nutrients from their leaves into hardening themselves off underground in preparation for, you know, some sort of dormancy period. And so it's like, you have to know a little bit more technique to harvest a spice. But when you're growing your medicinal herbs, I mean, you're, you're growing, a, a, you know, plants out for longer um, for like the underground rhizomes and things. It's really the same process for those medicinal herbs, you know, and it's like licorice. That's one you could call a spice or a a medicine and that's probably a three-year or longer time frame depending on how you're harvesting it so if you've already been doing some medicinal licorice you know then you could could definitely do spices and you know saffron is another one that you can plant as an annual if you want to but if you want to do your own corn production so that you can have you know increase your harvest every year and not have to buy new corns then you know you're looking at a year-long period to to do corn production. Yeah, there's a lot to dive into, but I have to say, as I was reading through your book, I was really excited that it seemed easier than I thought it would be in, in my head. I, I think we think of these spices as being these very exotic things that are you know, not things we can possibly grow on our own. So that's that's really what drew me to your book in the first place. So you decided not to go the commercial route with your spice growing and, and avoiding all of the issues with processing, labeling, and just focusing on growing for yourself and then hopefully teaching and spreading that knowledge, which I think is is great. So which spices did you start with when you started growing for yourself? And can you maybe share some of either your early successes or failures? We, we love to have a good laugh at ourselves here. <laughs> Um, I share my failures all the time. So hopefully people learn something from them. But I've never failed before. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, excellent. All right. You're in charge. Here we go. No, no. Um, so I actually, the very first thing I grew, this first spice I grew was, I would say lavender because I had gone to France and I had had some herb de Provence and it was amazing. It just made everything taste good that I applied it to. But I ran out and I went to buy it in the US and it was like $30 for a teeny tiny little package. It was something absurd because this is a long time ago and nobody was really making it. It was like only specialty retailers. Um, so I looked up the ingredients. I was like, oh, I bet you I could grow these things. So um, so I grew a bunch of like thyme and oregano and rosemary and, um, and then lavender. You have to harvest. The first time I did this, my biggest mistake was I waited till it flowered. I let it seed and then I tried to stick the seeds in my Herbe de Provence. But the thing that you put in Herbe de Provence is actually the flower bud literally the moment before it opens because right before it, it opens is when it's its aroma is the strongest and you want it to stay closed because then that aroma is sealed inside and so when you use it in your herb de provence it's just this peak experience and so yeah the first year i harvested seeds and they smelled like nothing and my herb de provence was terrible <laughs> the next year i figured out my mistake and it was wonderful <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. I've been making it for quite a while now. <laughs> right. What a difference that firsthand experience makes though, right? <laughs> it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to actually experience it and then yes. see the difference or smell the difference in this case. Yes. Oh, 
Um, one of the things you talked about early in the book was some of the challenges maybe for starting some of these spices, particularly from seed. So what are some of those challenges we might be facing as growers ourselves and any techniques or tricks that you can share to help us maybe get better results as we get started here? Absolutely. I think the one thing about spices is that even though they've been grown for thousands of years in some cases, they're still kind of wild um, because that's the thing that gives them all their aroma. Like they just haven't been as cultivated and that makes like the seeds and things smell stronger, you know, and so it just, it intensifies. It's probably true with your medicinal herbs as well, that, you know, if they're grown in, grown in circumstances that are really kind of more natural and, you know, more like what they would select themselves if they were going to self-sow in a place, then they'll be more aromatic and strong and more potent. And so with spices, people have intentionally sort of kept them wild. Um, even, you know, growers haven't really gone for the most domesticated version of these plants. So they have irregular germination a lot of times, which means that one might open in three weeks, another might open three years from now. It's kind of like a weed seed, in fact, in that some of them might have some partial um, dormancy built in where they might need some chemical trigger or, um, you know, some weathering or something like that to actually germinate that one. Whereas another one from the same plant might just germinate right away the second it hits the soil. So um, so I always recommend people overseed when you're trying spices, just to make sure that you get the right number of plants that you're looking for. I think also when you're trying to grow spices for seeds, you really need to be thinking about cross-pollination. People always, you know, you we know about pollination, like from our squash and things like that, but you also have to think about not cross-pollinating things like dill and fennel um, because they will intermingle and um, your seeds will come out smelling different than what you expect. Sometimes they can smell terrible and so then they won't taste good. And so you kind of have to think about placement of these plants. And there are a couple of things like Cumin is actually really quite difficult to grow here in North Carolina because it loves cold weather and we start getting like 85 degree days in February, <laughs> but it also doesn't love freezing weather. And so, you know, it's like, that's one of those plants that you, it's got a deep tap root. So it's not so easy to start in a pot and then transplant. And if you do it, don't do it properly, you might end up with just a really stunted plant that doesn't perform very well. And it, you know, or it might flower too early and then you don't get good strong seeds, you know, aroma. So, you know, that one's kind of like a tricky one. Um, so pollination is really sort of a factor and overseeding and then getting your timing right for the, the, the conditions that you can offer a plant, you know? So when I grow cumin, I have to start it indoors. And then I also, you know, I have to shade protect it a little bit if I want a good result when it, we have these crazy hot days in the early season. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think this is maybe a lot of times we get very excited about a new thing and we want to do all of it. And so I think it could be really tempting to look at your book and decide I'm going to try to grow 10 different spices this year that I've never <laughs> grown before. So thinking about needing to avoid cross pollination and things like that. Maybe this is a good reminder to folks to maybe let's just pick a couple and start slow uh, and build out from there. And definitely, I think overseeding is, is great advice anytime we're dealing with something new. And especially like you said, that they're really more wild than anything else. Um, and that they can have that irregular germination. I grew persimmons from seed this year. It started them all in the same day, had nothing happened for several weeks. And then I got a few. And then two months later, I had new ones start sprouting as well. And so I thought, oh, I thought I only had three trees. Now we're up to, I think, seven or eight. 
Um, but just over the course of quite a few months, they just slowly kind of did their own thing on their own calendar, on their own schedule. So that's, I think that's one of nature's amazing tricks that, you know, to make sure that these plants can survive all the variable conditions is by having some early starters and some late starters, then it kind of guarantees that some plants will survive the season and go right. on to, to self-propagate. Yes. That's why I always tell people, don't give up on, <laughs> don't give up on your little trays that you planted stuff. I'll just keep watering them for months and months. And then you never know <laughs> something randomly will just sprout up at the, the weirdest possible time. And you go, Oh, there you go. <laughs> So, um, I think for most of us, when we think about growing some of these spices, I kind of, my brain goes to the more tropical plants. So things like turmeric, uh, you mentioned vanilla earlier. That's, that's one I've read a little bit about and it can feel a little daunting. Um, and especially like we don't live in the right climates, right. To grow these things. So, but what's the reality though, because you live in a very similar climate to what I do. And it sounds like you're having pretty good success here. So are these things we can grow outside in our normal gardens or do we need to think about, you mentioned you have a greenhouse um, or growing things in containers, you know, what do we need to be thinking about beforehand to prepare? I think it really depends on the spice. So for example, where I am in North Carolina zone 7A, there's vanilla it has to be an indoor plant for me. Um, I tried to put it in the greenhouse, but I can't keep my greenhouse above 60 degrees. So it's, uh, it's, it just kind of, it, it really got really stunted even down at like 50 degrees and the leaves kind of got like glassy and they were just, they weren't holding enough chlorophyll to even continue growing. And so I had to end up giving up that plant, but I'd been growing one in the house and in the house, as long as you keep it away from your air conditioner, you know, it, you can grow it really well. So like I do have to supplement, use some supplemental light. And I also put it close to the window and I grow it with other plants because in, in nature, vanilla is one of those plants that grows up a tree. You know, it's an epiphyte that it, it attaches itself through these aerial roots and it actually feeds off the, the other tree. It's not parasitic. It's, um, it just, you know, it's just using it as a trellis and it's, it's eating little bits of uh, nitrogen and things that attach itself to the bark of the tree, but it doesn't damage bark or anything. So when I'm growing the vanilla indoors, it's like, I realize, okay, well, this is a social plant that's used to growing in connection with another plant. So I grow it around other, you know, house plants to keep it happy. So it's just like every spice, you know, that's why you were right. Take them one by one, because you, it's really important when you're trying something new and exotic that doesn't really live well in your natural environment to understand how it lives in nature so that you can try to, to the best of your ability, reproduce those conditions, you know? So black pepper is kind of a similar story. It's actually an understory plant that really likes to grow beneath other plants, but it won't flower and produce peppercorns as prolifically if it doesn't get direct sunlight. So you have to kind of, if you give it some plant company, it'll be happier. And then if certain times a year you increase the light level, you know, starting in like January and February, um, increase the light level, then you're kind of, you're giving it its shade love during the cooler months. And then as you're going into its flowering months, you're giving it full sun so that you can get full production. So there are lots of things you can like when you just start to really think about the plant as something with with its own needs and preferences, then it makes it easier to figure out what to do in the garden because what you're trying to do is make it happy. <laughs> right. I love that. So really it just comes back to you thinking about, like you said, where do these plants normally grow? And then having to kind of create these different, very specific microclimates for each of them. So again, maybe let's not try 10 of them this year, but just pick a handful. 
and, you know, figuring out that fine balance, like you said, with the peppercorns, it wants friends, it wants to be an understory plant, but it also for production really needs that extra light at certain points during its growth cycle. And that's probably stuff you just had to learn over time through observation. And really, um, I think one of the things I love is thinking about like how deeply you've had to develop your relationship, you know, with these different plants in order to find out everything they need in order to grow in North Carolina for you. So that's really beautiful. You mentioned ginger and turmeric, and those are two mm-hmm. that are actually, um, I wouldn't call them hard at all. I mean, people always get afraid of, should I extract the stuff from the grocery store? Well, well, why not try? Just have some fun, but put it in a pot because just in case it's carrying some pathogen you don't want in your garden, you don't want to you know, introduce it. But then if it grows really well next year, you can use some of your leftover ginger to plant. But it's one of those things that you can treat it basically like tomatoes. You can start them indoor when you start your tomatoes. You can nurse them them along until your tomatoes are ready to go out and then you can take them outside with your tomatoes so if you just like partner them with something that has similar growing conditions you know needs that moisture but also that early start so it gets a long season then you know it doesn't seem so complicated and it all it really just needs sort of rich deep soil to grow in so a nice big pot a lot of people um, have had good success like using those plastic totes just drill some drainage holes because they're nice and deep and they've got handles on both sides. Of course, now you've got grow bags and things like that. So um, there's so much more available to us than there were to gardeners 10 years ago, you know, where it was like, where do I find a big pot that's not going to cost me $75? Let's just use a tote. (laughs) Yeah, I love some of the grow bags. They're so handy. And for this, it'd probably be perfect. So things that you're going to be moving indoors and outdoors throughout the season. So yeah, that's a great idea. I love that. So you mentioned that you, that you have a food forest, and I'm also very interested in in permaculture and food forests as well. So I think one of my favorite sections to the book was the one about perennial spices. So yeah. being able to plant once and continue to come back. Uh, can you talk about maybe one or two of your favorites uh, from that section of the book? Yes. Well, I will actually tell you one for a colder climate that's not in the book, just to offer you something interesting, but I am now growing Sichuan peppers. Um, and that is a plant that looks a whole lot like a, it's a shrub, actually. It's a pretty big shrub, but it looks a lot like black locust or like a black locust meets an elderberry. It's kind of, it's just a really pretty plant and it's something that you can grow outdoors. It's a perfect sort of food forest kind of plant. And then those peppers have this like magical experience experience when you eat them. It's very citrusy and floral and your mouth tingles like pop rocks for about two or three minutes. And then you just feel enlivened. And (laughs) I'm sure there are medicinal benefits to it. But also, you know, for people in warmer climates, something like cinnamon or even cloves, you know, certainly if I were still living in California where I grew up, I'd be growing annatto and star anise and definitely be doing like some kaffir lime outside. I do that in pots inside. I've got them in my greenhouse and also indoors. Um, So that's, you know, but depending on your climate, there are different options for indoor, outdoor. But I also think containers, you know, it's... It's great to bring your plants inside in like a nice tree pot and keep them here for the, you know, to keep them warm in the winter and then put them back out, you know, when you're spending time outside so that you, you know, they don't, even if you're growing like an apple tree, you could certainly put like a kaffir lime in a pot next to it for the summer, you know, and let them hang out together and then bring the kaffir lime in back, back in in winter. You can definitely mix 
planted in the ground trees and potted trees and things like that. So if you want to do that with your cinnamon, grow it in a pot in a cold climate, because that's certainly not going to survive outside over winter, but then take it out to hang out with other plants during the warm season and get more growth out of it than you would just keeping it inside in limited light. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a great idea. And the added bonus is that then in winter, when you're going outside less, you've brought some of that inside with you. So I love having a house full of plants and I'm, I always need more. <laughs> so, Especially in winter when, you know, outside is kind of, it's different. I don't want to, it's not ugly or anything. It's just not as, as vibrant. So when you come inside and you've got all these green plants greeting you and some of them flowering early and it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> how warming. <laughs> right, exactly. You mentioned medicinal usage. And so one of the things I loved about the book is that you partnered with an herbalist to yes. offer some tips throughout the book um, about medicinal uses for these culinary herbs as well. And they always have so many. Can you talk maybe a little bit about how you've incorporated some of these herbs into your own life from that lens as well? Absolutely. Well, one of the things I grow a lot as a cover crop is mustard. And so I frequently let them flower. I end up with tons of mustard seeds. And until Lindsay gave that recommendation in the book, I had never thought about using the mustard seed as any, you know, as like a poultice. Um, it was just sort of surprising to me. The other thing is saffron. I always put it in rice. And, you know, I just, it's just something that goes with rice. That's just how I thought of it. Uh, Lindsay had actually recommended just using it in like a happy tea. Just put a few little threads in some hot water and let the color, it's very a very joyful kind of salmon, peachy, pinky color. Just got lots of highlights and things. Just looking at it is beautiful. But then that sort of savory, aromatic taste, it just sort of makes you feel calm. And so I've been using that one a whole lot. So, and I also didn't realize I have very low, low blood pressure and I I used to drink a lot of licorice tea and I didn't understand why it would like tank afterwards. So I was like, oh. <laughs> so that one's, you know, kind of one I've been using with more reserve now that I understand the implications. <laughs> Definitely. So good to have discovered that for sure. And now you can be very intentional about when you drink, <laughs> drink that licorice tea. Yes. <laughs> but, and I love what you said about the saffron too, and, and using that for tea, which I think most people, if you've ever looked at the price of saffron in the store, the thought of putting, you know, two or three threads of saffron into a single cup of tea just sounds terrible, right? Because it's so expensive. It's so expensive. And so here's the benefit of not only do you get to have this relationship with this plant, but now you get to have this extra nice little bit of decadence basically in your life where you get to make saffron tea and put it in your rice and make other dishes with it as well. So I, I love that. That's great. You also get these stunning flowers that show up in October when everything else is starting the downhill slide. So it's like this electric purple with those red saffron threads and it's just, and they open irregularly. It's not like, you know, a lot of plants open in the morning or like the primrose that opens in the evening. This guy, I've, I've been watching it for years now and they literally open all the time. So it's like, I'll go out in the morning and there'll be three open. I'll go out three hours later. There'll be seven open, I'll, you know, and then I'll go out at night. And while I'm there, I'll watch one of them open. So I have not been able to discern any pattern to their opening. Um, but sometimes I feel like when I go out, they open for me. It's almost like they're like, hey, notice me. <laughs> 
I love that. That's great. And yes, that that purple is so vibrant. Um, I had a friend about two years ago that started growing there in saffron and documented the, the process uh, on their Instagram. And it was just so beautiful. But that's just wild that they just open when they want to. Um, so for new growers, if you were going to suggest maybe just I keep trying to encourage people just pick one or two. So so are there one or two that you think are kind of like a good entry point for people if they're, you know, relatively new to growing spices and or relatively new to gardening maybe? I always tell people because it's not really the the complexity level. It's how invested you are in the process. So I always tell people, pick the spice you love the most that you know you'll be able to create conditions for. So I mean if you absolutely love um, something that's maybe a little bit harder to grow like like vanilla then go ahead and grow that one because it'll be a while it'll be probably five to seven years before you even think about getting a pod but it will while you're growing this plant developing that relationship it's also growing your appreciation and your knowledge about something you already love so it's not just the plant that you're growing and so you know it's like you just you win when you pick something that you already love and you enhance your appreciation and understanding for it. And because you already love it, you're more invested in taking care of it. So I would, you know, I mean, for me, it was the lavender buds, you know, that's where I started. I think a lot of people love lavender. So that's a good one to start with. And now I'm in North Carolina where it's harder to grow because of our humidity levels. It's a Mediterranean plant. So you have to try different cultivars and um, Munstead is the one that grows the the best um, from the culinary sort of side of things for us, but just trying to get to know how to create sort of good drainage and good airflow and where's the best spot for it on your property spend a little bit of time whatever you pick trying to make a home for it something that and a place that you want to visit that plant at too because the thing about spices is a lot of them actually produce a fair amount so you know you you can get all the lavender buds you need from one plant just because lavender is such a a strong um, aroma Um, you know same thing saffron you're going to need a fairly big plot for that but you know like something maybe like six by six or eight by eight um, if you want to get enough to really be out drinking it for tea but um, so make it a place you want to go visit with a little bench and a, a, you know maybe some other potted plants or something around it you know so I think anything can be grown no matter your skill level if you're willing to just understand the plant and and I, you know I give a lot of details in the book to try to make it easy for people you know I, I deal in rather than climate zones I deal in temperatures so that, you know, whether you're growing it inside or outside, temperature you need to be targeting um, and how low, how low can it go and still actually produce. So some of these plants can actually survive lower than what I've indicated in the book, but you'll never get a yield out of them. So it's effectively like not keeping, not, you're not going to get spice. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that's great advice. And definitely I always tell people, you know, there's no point in growing something in your garden if it's something your family or you aren't going to eat, right? So start with the spices you use the most. I'm on I'm growing on new land this year. And so literally the first thing I planted here was garlic because that's a non-negotiable in my cooking. Yeah. (laughs) That's the one I I can't live without. (laughs) I I can even tell you how to grow it in like a super hot climate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as a homesteader, you know, one of the goals for most of us is trying to grow as much of our own food as possible. You've been on this journey for a while now. Um, and experimenting with with spices, you know, what percentage of your home spices do you do you think you're growing at this point? I mean, 
I grow all of my garlic, but that takes like 300 bulbs because I eat a lot of garlic. <laughs> I grow my, yeah, licorice, coriander, mustard, um, not all of my own fenugreek, just because that one's a cool season plant. I have some challenges. So I can grow it, but but I can't get huge harvests off each plant. So that one, I'm still buying some of that. Yeah. Um, I definitely grow all of my own saffron. And you find this has maybe shifted. So maybe not just looking at just the percentage of, of spice that you're growing, but has this maybe shifted how and, and what you choose to cook then maybe too, like what flavor profiles as well? Maybe, but I think more than anything, I I mean, I really love spices, spices and herbs. I just feel like, you can give me a piece of meat or a piece of cheese and I can turn it into a meal if I have a couple of vegetables and some spices and, you know, or an egg even, you know, I mean, it just, so without those things though, it's just going to be a piece of meat or a piece of cheese. It's not going to be a meal. And so I, I've always, at least since I started cooking in my twenties, it's always been about flavor. And so I would consider that an essential thing. And so it's been more about trying to grow the stuff that I wouldn't want to live without. And <laughs> so like vanilla, I love it. I'm growing, I'm growing my plant, but, um, but I could live without vanilla, you know, I don't, you know, cause there are lots of other things that I can use to create that flavor profile. So that one isn't one that's like a deal breaker for me, but yeah, I don't know if I could, could do most of the kind of cooking I like to do without ginger or garlic. Um, so those guys are musts for my list. Definitely. Um, you mentioned the Szechuan pepper earlier. Are there any other spices that you didn't talk about in the book that you're either working on growing or hoping to grow in the future? No, but you know what's come up since then is um, I do a lot of education for the master gardeners and things, and everybody is really focused on native plants because we need to support our native pollinators. And so I've been kind of getting into this idea of native spices and trying to figure out if there are native spices. And so there are certainly things that are native to sort of the East Coast of the U.S. that maybe they don't necessarily have the same flavor profile, but they have had historical utility as sort of flavoring agents. And mm -hmm. they fall into that sort of definition of spice that I use, which is not the leafy herby green part. So like the sourwoods, which are a lot of people love sourwood honey, but apparently the flower buds have been used as a spice in the past because it's got like a citrusy taste. And then there's, everyone always asks me about the Carolina allspice or uh, Mm -hmm. Carolina spice plant, whether that's actually a spice. It smells like one, so it's wonderful for a potpourri, but it's not really a, a good edible. <laughs> so I've been kind of, and like the milkweed as a caper substitute, if you get the milkweed flowers and pickle those, you can use those as a caper substitute. So that's another native. And then there is the Virginia pepperweed plant that has mm -hmm. a lot of these seed pods. They're actually a fruit with the seed inside, but when they dry, if you grind them up, you can actually use them as sort of a black pepper substitute. So yeah. I've been experimenting a bit with that. Yeah, I actually am familiar with that one. Um, I've also heard it called, I think, Smartweed. Um, and yeah, it's that nice, uh, that nice peppery flavor. And yeah, I do love the flowers as like a caper substitute. Um, so you talk <laughs> about in the book, you talk about growing your own capers. And I was like, Ooh, cause I never had even really thought about it. Um, it's always just been this, you know, small little pickled jar that you get at the store. So now I'm very intrigued and I definitely want to want to try that. <laughs> well, that's one that was short lived in my greenhouse. So I kept it going for about three years. But yeah, we just had some conditions in there that weren't 
it was really just, it was work. <laughs> it was work. I loved doing it. It was a beautiful plant, but it wasn't one that I'll be growing for the rest of my life in North Carolina. <laughs> right. Sometimes it's a fight <laughs> to make it work in a certain <laughs> climate and sometimes it's worth it. And sometimes it's not, I guess yeah. it goes back to what you said about grow what you really love. So if that wasn't worth it for you, then, then that's okay. More room for vanilla and, you know, the ginger and the turmeric and everything else that you really <laughs> use a lot of, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> So before we close, uh, one thing I love to ask everyone when they come on the show is just, can you share something new that you're trying in your garden this year that you're excited about? Um, This doesn't have to be specifically about spices, uh, but just anything in your garden that you're excited about and want to share. So I have like tons of apples and plums and I have hazelnuts and chestnuts and all of this kind of stuff, but I literally only had a couple fig trees. And so I have now decided that I need hundreds. (laughs) So what I'm excited, I I just started 10 more and I'm going to be doing some, uh, some more propagation because I'm just feeling like it's, we're supposed to be Georgia with climate change here in uh, in a few years. (laughs) So I just want a lot more figs. So that's my new mission is to incorporate as many figs into my landscape as I can. I love that. Yeah, I love figs. So yeah, never enough. That is for sure. Well, Tasha, thank you so much for coming on the show. And like I said, this is a topic we haven't covered before. So I really hope it will inspire our listeners to think about the spices that they frequently use and love and maybe try their hand to grow one or two of them in this coming year in their own garden. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And I I hope this... uh does get some people growing more spices and not being intimidated because anybody can grow spices. Me too. Well, your book is very approachable. And so I think if anything is going to do it, this will definitely help people get started. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Isn't Tasha great? I hope you gained both knowledge and inspiration from her conversation today. If you do decide to incorporate some new to you spices into your garden this year, I hope you'll reach out to me and let me know. I'd love to hear how it goes for you. Also, I hope to have Tasha back on the podcast in the future to talk about her other book, Weed-Free Gardening, A Comprehensive and Organic Approach to Weed Management. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with me on social media at Fox and Elder or over on our farm website, foxandelder.com. I hope this new year is shaping up in a promising way for you and that you're taking plenty of time to rest up this winter and nourish yourself. Until next time, keep your hands dirty and your heart open. (music) 